This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Personally, as a designer, as an artist, you just keep making even if it's bad to you. And that's the thing, right? Something that's bad to you may be beautiful to someone else. You don't know that unless you put that into the world. And we're often such harsh, awful critics of ourselves that I think it's just important to keep making even if it's not in the medium that you are earning a living in. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. Karen, it is so nice to talk to you again. How was your holiday? It was pretty good. Um, I mean, obviously, the level of good is relative because the number of things that we can do right now safely is kind of limited. Um, it's like three things, right? Kind of, yeah. yeah. And I, I, my holiday was all, we didn't see anybody, we didn't do anything that required being around other people. So it was all right. How was your holiday? Uh, it was good. Um, my mother-in-law came up to stay, and then we were pretty sure her flight would be canceled. So we drove with her back to Virginia and then spent like oh, a wow. week down there. So it was actually, it was the first time that I actually really did not work for more than two days in a row in like Dang. two years. I didn't even yeah. check my email. And it was <laughs> it was like a wild, wild experience. It is, it, I actually relaxed and disconnected for once. And you know what? That we, really nice. we always talk about doing that on this show. So I, I finally took some of my own medicine and it was totally worth it. You feel like you're re- refreshed and rejuvenated now? I, I do, just in time to sit around my house while this new variant uh, closes down all the possibilities of life. Yeah, that's kind of the thing. Where it's like, I definitely didn't work for a few days, but the effect of that has felt almost non-existent now on the other side of it. Just right. like 2022, um, every single day has felt like a case of the Sunday scaries. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Where it's like every day you're like, oh my God, like I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> have to get up and do this again tomorrow. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's how the New Year's started off for me. Well, at least we have a fun work thing to do today, which is talk about this wonderful interview you did. Can you tell us whose voice we heard at the top of the podcast? Of course. Uh, this week's interview subject is the illustrious Jasmine Chong. She's a fashion designer with her own label um, based in New York. She is wonderful, and I'm a huge admirer of her designs, and um, you should go check them out whether or not you listen to the rest of this episode. Uh, and she was also recently on the uh, reality show Making the Cut, right? Yeah, that's correct. She was um, a contestant on a fashion reality show or competition reality show. Awesome. And I believe our Slate Plus listeners get a little something extra this week. Mm-hmm. So the extra segment um, is something that I really find interesting and hopefully Slate Plus listeners will too. We talk a little bit about the um, sizing standards in the fashion industry, especially like how for a long time and still right now to a pretty large degree, fashion is centered around a very... Um, narrow subsection of body types and sizes. That's great. Well, I can't wait to listen to it. And you, listener, if you can't wait to listen to it either, 
This would be a great time to subscribe to Slate Plus. It is only $1 for the first month. Subscribers get access to all sorts of goodies like bonus content on this episode, extra episodes of of other podcasts. You get to go behind the paywall at Slate and read all the articles. It's really great. Only $1 for the first month. And you can subscribe at slate.com slash working plus. All right. It's the new year. What better time to sign up for Slate Plus? I know you probably have like a resolution that's like, I'm going to be more informed and cooler. Mm -hmm. And this will do both of those things. I'm going to read more. I'm going to listen to more cool podcasts. Exactly. We we got that covered for you. Exactly. Just go to slate.com slash working plus. All right. Let's hear Karen's conversation with fashion designer Jasmine Chaw. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So when did you first become interested in fashion? I think it was always there at a young age. My mother was a fashion designer. Oh, wow. Until she had kids and she would take me to the garment center of Malaysia. I grew up in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and she would encourage me to pick out a few fabrics, which she would then turn into these dresses, like just sundresses and play dresses. So... Yeah, as a child, I saw that process and I always thought it was really cool. Like I would pick these purple, like purple buttons to go on my yellow sundress. (laughs) And it was just, it was just fun. And I think that was when I first opened my eyes to the sense of taking something and then turning it into something else that you can wear. Mm hmm. Um, On a sort of basic level, it almost sounds like the journey that I think a lot of us have with cooking, where it's like we watch our mothers do it or our parents do it and get to do like small things in the kitchen to help out um, and sort of learn that way. When did you first start? So you went to go like pick out fabrics and buttons and like look at all the materials that go into making clothing. At what point did you start making things on your own? Um, Well, it sort of went on from sketching. I would like just sketch a lot, like notebooks just filled with collections. I think it was probably, you know, the sound of music. (laughs) Yeah. I saw that and I was just like, wow, you know, they've taken this, these drapes and they've turned it into these incredible clothes. (laughs) And then I would then make my own version of this sound of music. That's amazing. Collection. I think I called it a collection as a kid, just sketches. Yeah. Um, So that was pretty early on. Um, and I sort of put it aside for a little bit. I didn't, I think there was a point where I thought I could be an economics or English major. Mm -hmm. 
and it didn't really work out for me. And then I went to art school and created like my first piece and we did a fashion show and the the response was really good. And I think that was when I first started to see, because that was my first step into like this formal education, like formal mm-hmm. fashion education where I learned the skills and I learned how to sew and I could then take all these skills and create something that could be on a model to walk down mm-hmm. the runway. Um, so it's sort of like a big gap, I guess, because childhood, like knowing that you're into this thing. Right. And then discovering other things about yourself along the way and then picking it back up again. Yeah. Um, do you remember that first piece that you designed in school? Yeah. Um, it was actually, I think, pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was inspired by like an avalanche or something. Whoa. Um, and it, it was just objectively a very, um, I don't know how to say this. I think I was a sophomore in the fashion program Mm -hmm. and it was the first thing that really made to put on the model and send down the runway. And I just wanted to do all the things. Like there's like a little gathered puffy sleeve. It's a one shoulder. Then there's these like layers of giant pleats and it's all white. And Mm -hmm. it's also hand painted gray. I don't know. (laughs) You'll have to see it (laughs) or maybe not. (laughs) I w- I'm very curious, but I, I won't press the topic. Um, like, when did you first, while like going to school for fashion and learning about how to make your own designs into reality, like at what point did you think this is what I want to pursue um, for the rest of my life, or at least for the foreseeable future? Because you mentioned um, there were a couple other paths that you looked into, but decided that wasn't for you. I think it was the moment where... Um I looked at a design and I wanted to make it for my mother. Mm. And, you know, my mother does not wear, um, in the industry, we call it a straight size. So she's not a size zero, two or four. So um, I had to learn how to measure her and figure out how to make it for her. Because in school, we're really, at the time, we were learning how to make pieces for um, a straight size model. Right. And I think that was sort of the moment when I could see that there was a need for that, for someone who was actively thinking about um, bodies beyond a size zero to four. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just a personal, it was very personally rewarding to make something for my mother and to see her wear it and love it. I'd say that was the beginning where I could really start to think about it as something I did for work, for, for life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and what, wh- do you remember like having a conversation with your mother when you decided that this was what you wanted to pursue, given that it was what she had also done, um, in the past? Well, she was very encouraging about it. I think when I was, um, I was at UVA for my first year of college mm-hmm. where I was trying to be an economics major and <laughs> my mother was the one person who would, and my sister, I guess. Yeah. They were both saying, you know, well, shouldn't you apply to Parsons? What about RISD? Oh, yeah. And I think I just had it in my head that I really wanted to be. Both my siblings had gone to UVA. Mm-hmm. So it was just, yeah, I just got in my head and wanted to also do that. 
And I think very quickly I realized after a semester or two that it wasn't the right fit for me because Mm -hmm. it's just a very different kind of education. And I took some time off, went back to Malaysia, worked on a portfolio and applied to art school. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And I wanted to talk about, I guess, one step further down your initial path as well. You worked at other fashion houses um, as well prior to founding your own label. Um, Can you describe a little bit of your career path? I guess I'm not sure whether you started working at those fashion houses prior to graduating or after, but either way, your kind of entrance into that world. Yeah. So before graduating, I had spent um, a summer in New York. Mm -hmm. So I went to school in Chicago I went to school at the Art Institute of Chicago, and I was in New York for the summer, and I was interning in the design department for Anna Sui. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the most eye-opening experiences for me Mm -hmm. towards the fashion industry, because I think your first fashion experience really shapes you. And just seeing how Anna um, has a family business, essentially, and is at the pinnacle of her career um, as an Asian woman in the garment district. It was just really, really inspiring um, to see the business aspect of everything as well. And beyond that, after graduation, I also worked in um, Takoon's design team. Um, I had a short freelance thing at Tory Burch. And I think from each experience, you kind of pick up these things, right? And you decide like, oh, that's that works. And, you know, I'm meeting all these contacts mm-hmm. in the garment district. I know where to go for buttons and for mm-hmm. pleats. And without even realizing it, you're sort of garnering all these skills and contacts. And it really helps you in the, for in the future if you decide to start your own label, and right. that really wasn't something that I had thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, there was always this element of, should I move back home to Malaysia? Should I do yeah. something there? But after graduation, I sold most of my senior collection. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, it was really validating. I remember getting the check and yeah. just <laughs> yeah. crying. Like, oh. oh my gosh, people want to pay money for things I make that's yeah. wild. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it gave me the confidence to try it out mm-hmm. in New York. So what goes into starting your own label? Because at least from an outside perspective, that seems like kind of a, a huge amount of work. It's so much work because <laughs> I mean, aside from all the logistics and the finances. I was lucky enough to have my family help and invest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that, this logistics of finances. And then there's this whole idea of who am I as a designer? Right. What do I want to put out there? What's my aesthetic? And for me, I think when I first started, I didn't really have to think about it too much because from my past work, mm-hmm. even the avalanche dress, that was... <laughs> <laughs> that was something, um, you can sort of see this common thread that ties your work together. Mm -hmm. And you don't even really see it when you're in it and creating the work, but you see it when you're sort of surveying the work from, you know, 
a year or two of distance. Yeah. Um, so I, as I started to design that first collection, it incorporated a lot of work that I had, um, like sketches and draping and just ideas that I had put together even since my first year of fashion school. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being this really, I didn't even have to try to tell the world like, hey, this is me. This is what Mm -hmm. I do. You know, it just was just based on um, the elements, the design elements and the things that I was drawn to for that first collection. Um, for people uh, on, who might be listening who aren't as familiar with your work as I am, how would you now um, describe your aesthetic or your general design sense? Um, I think everything is everything I work on is very much rooted on um, something personal, something that makes me feel. Sometimes it's a place I've been to and how I felt when I was in that place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the silhouettes are very fluid, very drapey. Um, and I think I also bring in this element of being half Malaysian and half Indonesian, this love for texture mm-hmm. and soft glamour and embroidery and just really special fabrics that glimmer and are metallic and beautiful. Um, so yeah, it's a combination of that. Yeah. I'm curious if you have a specific example that you can describe for us of a garment that you described with a specific place in mind and how you translate um, one thing that I wouldn't like, for example, I, if I'm thinking of like my home, I wouldn't necessarily know how to translate that into a garment. So I'm curious, Mm -hmm. like what elements you find important to pull in that sense? Yeah. So the last, um, collection I showed at Fashion Week mm-hmm. uh, was called Celestia. And it really was based on, um, I was in Paris filming, uh, making the cut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're going to circle back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this kind of, yeah. Um, and spoiler, I had just gotten booted <laughs> and was feeling really small and really ugly and just... Aww really bad at what I do sort of not great Mm -hmm. and I remember being um they had allowed me to stay in Paris after um I was eliminated so I wanted to go to Versailles because I'd never been Mm -hmm. so I went to Versailles and I remember just feeling so small and so human and so ordinary (laughs) in this grandiose palace it's just so luxurious and grand and just gorgeous. And I translated that into um, a collection where, you know, there's fabrics that feel like the tin ceilings of Paris, mm-hmm. the cafes that you get. So there's pieces that feel really fluid and ethereal um, in this soft sea foam color really heavenly looking at the frescoes in Versailles. But I also paired that with pieces that were really heavy and uh, velvety and dark, like browns, textured browns um, that really, I think, portrayed 
at least to me, how I felt. Mm-hmm. Just small and not very good or, <laughs> yeah, almost dumpy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that's where that came from. And I think it's almost collections and clothes and designs. It's almost a way for me to cope with my own feelings about things. Yeah. And it's a great way for me to um, find some sort of recovery from them. Yeah. By yeah. putting it out into the world and then having someone say, oh my gosh, that coat reminds me of the tin ceilings of Paris. I'm like, perfect. And yeah. they love it. And then they wear it and they feel beautiful in it. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I guess that whole experience was not in vain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think that's that's definitely one of the kind of strange things I think about art in general, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like you it is a space where you can explore kind of the more vulnerable sides of yourself or what you're feeling at that time. Right. Um but yeah, I wanted to talk about your time on a reality show and I <laughs> I'm curious what if they reached out to you or if you applied to it and if it was the latter what in what made you want to put your hat in for that experience. So they reached out to me, and I think mm-hmm. I was just at a point in my career that was 2019, yeah, a few years ago, where I was just open to whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I was open. I was saying yes to a lot of things. I was um, open to experiences. So the idea was, why not? Yeah. Um, and, you know, coming from Malaysia, and living in America, you never really think that you're going to be swooped up by um, reality casting <laughs> agents. <laughs> so it's kind of a whole exciting whirlwind. And it was a lot of fun. I also wanted to mention for our listeners, we are currently Zooming with Jasmine in her atelier, which you opened fairly recently, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so we actually moved into this space, I want to say, two months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, we were in the same building, a few floors down in a smaller space. But this one um, just has more light and, you know, I can have clients come in for fittings and things. So that's always nice. Uh, at what point did you start having like your own, I guess, separate studio? Like, did, was there ever a point where you were only just working out of your apartment or did you always have like a separate dedicated space to focus on your design work? So the first dress that I actually designed for the collection, uh, mm-hmm. for the line, was in my bedroom in my apartment. And I had run out of uh, muslin, which is this sort of cheaper fabric that you experiment with. So I just took my flat sheet, because who needs flat sheets? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, I and I tore it up and I draped... Um, what is now the botanist dress, one of our bestsellers. Wow. Yeah, so that actually happened in my apartment. And soon after that, I I got my first studio, my first office space. But there was a lull in between where I was unsure about the label and unsure about what I wanted to put out into the world. And I didn't renew a lease and I moved everything back into my apartment and just sort of sat with it. While you're having like the kind of an existential crisis about what to do next, like, d- did you ever think about, I guess, going back into someone else's design house? Like, what were kind of the options that you thought about for yourself 
going forward as a designer? Yeah, I think the existential crisis really comes from being specifically in New York City. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think for a lot of us, creatives. Yeah. And there's never any doubt to me that I want to make clothes um, or make things in a way. And with my family being in Malaysia and Indonesia, when things get hard, there's always this moment of like, what am I doing? Like, I could be doing this back home with all these plants and, and like good fruit (laughs) (laughs) and family. So that's where it really came from. Like, should I just bring this back home or should I fight it out here? And each time that happens, I think the existential the existential crisis, it happens in waves. I think it happens <laughs> maybe even once a week, right? Where you're just like, why? Why here? <laughs> like, for what? And something always happens that is a win, and then you get excited again. Whether it's being inspired by something at a museum or meeting someone who just falls in love with your work in such a personal way, you remember that, well, you know, this is where I want to be. Yeah. I, you actually answered what my follow-up question was going to be. I was going to ask, like, how you get over it or what you do to sort of recharge. But it seems like the city kind of takes care of that for you in a way. Yeah, the city takes care of that. And I think just personally as a designer, as an artist, you just keep making even if it's bad you (laughs) and that's the thing right something that's bad to you may be beautiful to someone else you don't know that unless you put that into the world um and we're often such harsh awful critics of ourselves yeah that i think it's just important to keep making even if it's not in the medium that you are earning a living in like i have a film camera and sometimes when i had a rough day you know, especially over the last year and a half during the pandemic, I would just take the film camera and go out and just take photos of flowers and plants and go to Central Park. And then I'd get them developed and I'd be inspired by the colors and the shapes. Um, I think it's just finding ways to be inspired. It sounds so cliche, but... <laughs> it's it, well, You can help yeah. it if it's true. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um so I think that's how I sort of maintain the love with the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and speaking of flowers, I also wanted to talk about your fifth and latest collection uh, in bloom. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it may be a sort of self-evident from its name, but where did the inspiration for that come from? What was the process of building that collection? So that collection was born deep in lockdown <laughs> where I, you know, I live in a little apartment in house kitchen and I have a bunch of plants, but I don't have outdoor space. I mean, mm-hmm. I wish. Um, <laughs> and I yeah, actually in New got... New York, that's like impossible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually got a flower subscription from Molly Oliver Flowers. Oh, cool. And it was just to ensure that every week there was a... F- a bouquet from a farm upstate or something like flowers that I had never seen before um, on my mantle, on my shelf. And it just was a way for me to have something constant to look forward to. 
mm-hmm. and something that brought life and color to the apartment when I wasn't really leaving at all. Yeah. And the collection really comes from this place of just like these vibrant colors almost attacking your apartment, you know? <laughs> like, that's why, I mean, I always swore to myself that I would never use like hot pink fuchsia. Oh, and yeah. The whole thing. Have you seen it? Yeah. Like, no, I'm curious why that color was um, a taboo for you prior to this. I think I always had this idea of myself as a very neutral, mm-hmm. one of those neutral, elegant designers, you know? Like you think of New York and you're like, well, I'm going to be that kind of designer. And then you realize you don't have to be. Yeah. <laughs> Here's some hot pink. Um And in a way, it was fun to play with a color that I had always sworn that I wouldn't work with. Actually, Mm -hmm. in my my senior collection, I hadn't used that color since my senior collection. Wow. Yeah. So I used it then um, because it was inspired by like pink guavas. Yeah. (laughs) And I never touched it again. (laughs) Now here it is everywhere. (laughs) Are there any, I'm curious if there are any other um, sort of rules that you've set for yourself in that effect, whether it's colors or fabrics that you avoid or something that you always try to do, on the other hand? Um, I think in the last year, I've really let go of that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Because I used to be very, okay, everything has to be um, this lustrous charmeuse silk or velvet. Mm. And with In Bloom, with the latest collection, I used a silk cotton poplin um, because I wanted a more wearable everyday like day dress. Um, and I've been more open to other things. So other than that, I don't think I have any other rules. That's great. That <laughs> seems like very freeing to come to as a realization. Yeah, to break out of this idea of who you need to be to be seen a certain way. Mm-hmm. I think I really start to let that go Yeah, over the last few years. I think that's maybe the, the healthiest outcome to the pandemic, especially. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Most of us have gone the other way. <laughs> exactly. You can go the other way. You can go halfway. You know, you can go wherever. Mm-hmm. And it's completely fine. Yeah. And this this betrays just how little I know about what goes into maintaining a fashion label. But I, once you settle on a design for a piece of clothing, um, in producing that, how much of like is is the design then sent to I I don't know a, a factory to put together, or do you hand make all these garments? What what is the process? So um, with a bloom bag, I, I make. And generally garments, I make a loose prototype. Mm-hmm. So I sketch, I drape, um, I decide on fabrics or I experiment with fabrics. And it's a very loose idea of what it looks like on the body. You kind of stitch it in there with your needle and thread, like a basting stitch to hold it all together. And then you start to figure out the shape, right? And the proportions and what works and whether it works with a pair of pants or with a skirt or whatever. Um, And then once we have that very good solidified idea of what the prototype is going to be, well, I mean, I guess that's a prototype, (laughs) prototype one. (laughs) And then we, we pattern it, we make patterns out of it. um, And then we create the first sample Mm -hmm. and then we fit the first sample 
on a model, sometimes on me. Um, sometimes we start, typically in the industry, the sample size is, you know, around a four, two or four. But sometimes because I am selfish, I want to make clothes for myself. Um, we just I don't think that's me. selfish at all. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I want to make, I want to wear the prototype. Yeah. <laughs> like I want to wear the samples. And so I test it out or model will test it out. And then if it all works, we make our little adjustments and we send it to the seamstress and we'll make however many units. Mm -hmm. It's all still very um, small scale, like small unit production. And everything's mm -hmm. based in New York City. Like I know the names of everybody who works on the pieces. That's incredible. Which is really, really nice. Like yeah. in many ways, I feel like it's something that I didn't think I would end up with, but it's, mm -hmm. it's just nice. And, you know, sometimes I struggle about like scaling and growth yeah. and what that looks like, because right now it's just so comfortable. Like I have someone sewing my accessories and I have, um, another two people working on the clothing and it's just really lovely to know everybody's name. Like it's, it's such a buzzword, but it feels like slow fashion. Mm -hmm. and knowing what exactly what goes into the pieces. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something, especially for people like me who don't know anything about how the fashion industry works, it seems like kind of the best possible moment where you know everyone that you work with and you have all these established relationships with these people. Like earlier, you're also talking about like finding, knowing someone to go to for buttons or a particular kind of fabric or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what really... Um, kept me in New York when it, things got hard, especially over the last like year and a half, there was this question of, should I move to LA? I have friends there. I could have a bigger apartment um, <laughs> and the weather's better. It's a little bit closer to Asia. And I remember the first time I went back to the garment district after um, everything was closed and it was, it almost felt like a warm hug, like, Oh. going to the trim man and counting buttons and being like, how are you? It's yeah. like, no, how are you? You know, <laughs> <laughs> like no one's good right now. Um, <laughs> and it's just really nice. Like knowing that you have your people and your community, that sense of familiarity. Um, I think, I'm sure it's not impossible to rebuild in a different city, but for me at this point in time, I, I decided, no, New York is it for now. We'll be back with more of Karen's conversation with Jasmine Chong after this. Hey, listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304 933 WORK. That's 304 933 WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I wanted. I want to talk about your eye for fashion as well. I know when I was a full time critic, a film critic, a lot of the time I would get asked like, "Oh, well, I, like what movies are you like? What are you watching right now?" As a fashion designer, looking at other people's designs, looking at, I guess, outfits on the street. Like, what do you look for? What do you find your eye most naturally drawn to? What do you find? A, what do you find attractive to like put in your own wardrobe that somebody else has designed? Yeah, um, I think I'm really drawn to um, people who aren't afraid of volume and especially those who achieve that with these light, voluminous, kind of these poofy shapes. I think that's always really cool to look at. I love a mix of texture, whether it's um, like a really heavy tweed jacket with a chiffon skirt that's semi-sheer. And I'm also really just drawn to just like 1930s glamour, like the the bias cut dresses, the fluidity, this movement away from the boyish silhouettes of the 20s into these smooth lines that skim the feminine form. And I think there's just something about, I think you can always tell when somebody loves what they're wearing. Yeah. <laughs> Even if it's really strange and quirky, and they just love it and they embody that confidence and it just radiates. Yeah, you can always tell when it's like being put on as opposed to being that person, right? Exactly. And I think you can also tell specifically when someone has decided that something is aspirational to them. Like I hear this all the time about the archer jacket, um, this velvet jacket that I have that has these drapey like sculptural pockets and is lined in silk and is very velvety and lovely where people say, oh no, like I love that jacket, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I could wear a full green velvet jacket. I'm like, well, try it. Mm -hmm. And then you see them put, put it on and then they get it. And then you, you get tagged. Well, I get tagged on Instagram and I see like how people are wearing these archer jackets out in the world. And it's so cool to see them put something on that was aspirational to them once right, right. and is now a part of their everyday and continues to make them feel like they're this incredible version of themselves. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious if you have any garments that you feel that way about. So where you're like, oh, like I ha it has to moment, ha either it's like the moment has to be just right or it's like I need to get to X point in order to be able to wear this properly. Yeah, so I um, I have this. It's actually like right here, right now. This uh, oh, um, right. It's this floral brocade uh, Dries Van Noten jacket, and it's floor length. It has big collars. Oh wow, yeah, and it's it's not printed. It's like embroidered. Wow. All over. So it's very intense. It's definitely a coat that commands attention. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> My friend sent it to me. My friend Matthew sent it to me. It was on eBay, which I love for like designer vintage <laughs> the best. Yeah. And he's like, 
you should get this. And I'm like, mm, it's not really how, like, how will I wear this? And then I got it. And I find ways now, Karen. Nice. <laughs> I find ways to wear it. Like, I'm wearing all black today with tights. And I'm going to throw on my yeah, the sta- a floral, like, floral yeah. coat. Exactly. So You have to send me a picture it, later of you wearing it. Yeah. <laughs> I think everything can be aspirational mm-hmm. until you make it your own. And then it still remains a little aspirational, but it also becomes so much a part of the fabric of how you are and what you love about yourself. Um, and it becomes like your everyday coat. Like I have completely worn that to Target across the street. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's fine. Yeah. And it's New York too. So like, True. you know, whatever. <laughs> um, I have one last question that sort of touches on the idea of like aspirational garments where as opposed to finding a, like an existing garment, something aspirational where you're like, oh, I, I need to figure out how to wear this. Has there ever been an element like that that you have or have wanted to incorporate into your own designs? Whether you worry like, oh, is this too big? Is this too flashy? Or is this too much? But making, how do you make that work? How do you overcome that kind of hurdle? Um, I think the beauty about fashion, um, especially designer fashion, is that there's this element of dreaming and fantasy. Mm -hmm. So anything that you feel you want, and every season is something different to me. Sometimes it's that velvet jacket. Sometimes it's a velvet gown that we made with 20 yards of velvet that nobody's going to buy, but like (laughs) people will take photos with. And that's fine because, you know, like in a collection, some pieces are editorial and some are more easily commercial and sellable. But I think that it's such a nice lesson to have this idea of like you reach for something or you create something that you've been dreaming of and then you make it and then other people are able to sort of subscribe to it in a way. Like they can see themselves in it. So it's still aspirational, but it becomes more accessible in a way. And for every collection, there's a couple of pieces where I'm pretty sure my team is like, Jasmine, you want to do what? (laughs) Like, I think this, I've been obsessed with this idea of like a really, really cool velvet puffer coat. (laughs) Which I think, I think there's this element of just, it's like kind of ridiculous because puffer coats should not be velvet because there's snow, da da da. But also, what a statement. Yeah, and I think the, the puffer is evolving. Yeah. It really is, right? Like the puffer has, yeah, it's evolving. So I've been um, testing the idea of that. That's amazing. For the next. So we'll see, we'll see. I'm very excited to see it if it if it makes it to fruition. Um, thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's been such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Yeah. And for people who want to own one of your designs for themselves after listening to our wonderful conversation, where should they go to find your work? Well, you can shop online at jasminechong.com. And if you're in New York City, you can make an appointment um, to come into the atelier and meet me, probably, if I'm in. You can meet Jasmine. How <laughs> and, amazing You know, I'll make that. you a cup of tea, maybe get you a mochi donut from across the street. Wow. Yeah. That's the full service experience. 
podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Karen, that was such a delightful interview. It's really fascinating to me that Jasmine's moment of realizing she wanted to do fashion as a career came out of an experience that was so personal. It was just like deeply entwined with her family and with love for her mother. That definitely was not my experience with writing, which was just like a slow thing that I got more and more into over a decade. But it's a good reminder that there's no one size fits all way to figure out where you're going or what you're going to do with your life. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I think about that a lot in relation to like the, what you think you want to do as an adult when you're a child. For instance, like f- for me growing up, I was like, I loved um, drawing and illustrating. So I was like, what I really want to do is like become an illustrator or an animator. But obviously that's not even close to what I do now. <laughs> um, and then there's even like the um, sense of like, how much does your college degree affect what you end up doing? Because I know a lot of people, especially like in media where it's like what they majored in has nothing to do with what they do now i think Um, like no one's college major actually has to do with what they do (laughs) almost no one i know it's like i was a philosophy major and now i work for an anti-climate change think tank or you know like whatever it is it's just like everyone i everyone i talk to it's always very different yeah it's only like if you went to school for something like engineering or something where it's like that has a pretty clear career track um but otherwise i mean even like getting into journalism there's no one way to get into the field or become successful in the field. Like the way that I got into journalism, for instance, is not something that I think is necessarily like easily replicable or followable. Some people were like, you have to go to journalism school. It's like, that's not true. And it's You just, were an art history major, right? I was, that's yeah. correct. Um, but there's just so much out there right now. And the field, every field only keeps getting bigger and bigger because the way that we communicate with each other has become so much more... I want to say that it has also become bigger, but that's not quite the right terminology. But you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Where there's so many ways to accomplish anything that I find stories like Jasmine's like really impressive and to a certain extent, like really inspiring because it's like you knew what you wanted to do and you made that happen, which like I feel like I sort of wish I'd done, you know? Right. It's like, oh, you actually had that epiphanic moment that we uh, read about in stories, but it actually happened to you. It's a real thing. (laughs) Exactly. You know, one of the hardest things I think to talk about is the development of an aesthetic, like like Mm -hmm. how you develop your aesthetic. And I was so so glad to hear you ask her about it, especially because we're talking about something that's not literal you know what i mean like like how does a physical location become a garment not everyone buying the celestia collection will know that it's based on versailles you know Mm -hmm. for example i mean 
you know, do you think that matters? Do we need to know the inspiration for something to fully appreciate it? Or is it just that it sort of connects to us on this almost dream logic level? I'm very much a proponent of the latter. Like, I think uh, not to like, um, not to invalidate my own point about like college degrees not really translating, but I feel like one of the things that I really learned, like as an art history major, is like, it's not, the context of a piece of art is really important and will help put it into a bigger kind of framework for you. But at the same time, what is really important and generally what people tend to remember is the immediate kind of emotional reaction that you have to something. Like for instance, like if there's a painting that you see and you have an immediate really visceral connection with it, the context and background is only really going to help your appreciation of that. But it's not necessarily going to be the thing that makes or breaks how you feel about something, you know, like it could eventually be like, if you saw something that you didn't really think was very good and then you read the um, description and figured, found out something about the artist's history or why that piece was made, it might help. But it's not the one thing that's going to define right. a piece of art. <laughs> totally. Uh, I also wanted to say that I just loved your discussion of hot pink, a color I, I do not personally so wear. Funny. But yeah, yeah, I mean, so many artists, myself included, we carry around this idea of like, this is the kind of work that I do. And mm-hmm. it can be so clarifying to know who you are and to create some rules, right? Because when you start at yeah. the beginning of a project, you're like, this could be anything. Is this a collage? Is it a essay? Is it a graphic novel? What is it? And creating some rules for yourself, you know, it helps you get over that. But it can also be a trap because you close yourself off from certain possibilities in your work. Like, I am not a designer who uses hot pink or, you know, whatever. Did you identify with that? Have you struggled with that of sort of like how firmly to hold on to a specific identity? Definitely. Um, I mean, like, even in like early on when I was drawing, like, I definitely wanted to draw more like cool and like serious stuff. Like, the, I, I mean, it, the limit of cool is like pretty relative because I was still drawing like mostly pretty anime based, like manga based things. So I thought that was really cool. But like, when I wanted to draw like cool and edgy characters as opposed to like girly or cute things, I guess. And I feel like that has also sort of translated in um, the kind of screenwriting that I do, where it's like my focus tends to be more on. Uh, more dramatic stories, I guess. Like, I lean more towards drama, whereas my Mm. writing partner definitely leans a little bit more uh, into the comedic side, Um, which has been, I think, one of the good things about having a writing partner where it's like, we can sort of balance each other out. But because my impulse is still like, I still really want to make like a cool, like serious work of art, which is, I mean... It's a hangup that we all have to let go of, right? Where yeah. it's it's a sort of pretentiousness where you want to be taken seriously or want to be thought of as cool. But there's so much stuff out there that if you only think like that, you are restricting yourself from. For example, like I love Paddington too, but I feel like with my current mindset, if I started to try to write a screenplay, I would never reach that kind of um, story. I would never reach that kind of height, even though it's a fantastic movie. It's so delightful. It's so good. And it's on streaming now, right? I think I think I think it is. Uh I have just received a note from uh uh our interim producer uh Zach Rosen that he wants to know what our aspirational garments are in response so to the interview with uh Jasmine. I'm not a hundred percent sure I am, have totally wrapped my brain around the aspirational garment as a concept. So why don't you tell me some of your aspirational garments and then and then I will I will respond. 
Definitely. I mean, for me, I think it, it leans towards like designers that I really like whose price ranges tend to be out of my range by an astronomical amount. <laughs> like I really admire the, like Jasmine Designs also. Uh, like sh- it is a luxury uh, brand. Like it's not something that's necessarily I'm going to go out and buy off the shelf pretty easily. Um, like Jasmine's work I really admire. I also love the designers um, Simone Rocha, um, The Vampire's Wife, like that kind of, I guess, more high-end stuff. But all of those dresses are definitely more formal, more ostentatious than what you would probably feel comfortable just going out and having a normal day wearing. Like, they're definitely special occasion clothes. But I think, like, what is useful for me to try to think about overcoming is, like, how... I, I was thinking about, like, one of these dresses the other day, for instance, where it's like, if this dress is, like, so expensive you can't just wear it once, right? Like you have to figure out how to work it into your routine in a more um, frequent way to justify spending that much money on it, which is maybe not quite what aspirational garment is supposed to be about, where it's like, it's supposed to be a garment that you're like, wow, this is really something that I admire, that I think is beautiful and that I want to wear, but might be tough um, to wear out. Um, To a certain degree, I feel like it is also just confidence, right? Right. Where, like, I have a lot of clothing, for instance, that I really like, but I'm like, oh, I got to wear, I got to save this for, like, an occasion where a cool outfit is necessary or, like, it it warrants, like, looking good. Um, But I I have to get over that. Mm Mm-hmm. I am very jealous of the sartorial sense of former working host and Washington Post editor Jacob Brogan, who has like he he just has a very good I don't know he just pulls off pants that I don't feel like I would be able to <laughs> what pull kind off of that pants? are like these like he would do these he would like I I did a reading with him once where his pants were he was wearing these trousers but they were like a floral print Ooh. they almost looked like old wallpaper and I was like I couldn't do that you and could he just do looked, that well maybe I could I don't know but the the other you aspirational were a good looking garment tall dude you could definitely oh, do shucks. it <laughs> the, the other the other thing I got to say and I think I'm not alone on this is just the succession sweater collection. Yeah. I just want all of those sweaters and cardigans. Mm -hmm. I mean, in part because like I teach, right? So like I have a lot of opportunities to wear a cardigan. And I feel like a really nice, you know, like when when Brian Cox shows up in those like thick gauge knit sweaters, I'm like, God damn, man. I wish I could... uh, buy one of those you so know? you have um, two routes of aspirational two, two clothes routes, one is routes. i wish i could pull this off and the other one is yeah. i just wish i had this for my everyday uh, life yes yeah yeah gotcha. exactly exactly which is like nice nice cardigans mm-hmm. uh uh you know yes because i have many of them i have too many actually <laughs> oh okay but I need like a a, a a nice one um <laughs> so you have too many okay cardigans and you need one really i have too many nice okay ones. cardigans oh. don't listen don't listen cardigans don't listen to this conversation <laughs> cardigans i'm not talking about you it's not not it's, talking it's about not you. you it's me yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> Well, we hope you have enjoyed this week's show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you will never miss an episode. And now, for one last time this week, let me tell you about how awesome a Slate Plus membership is. With your Slate Plus membership, you get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to all the articles on Slate.com, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and How to Do It, and right now you can sign up for just $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash working plus. 
And thank you so much to Jasmine Chong for being our guest this week. And enormous thanks to our producer for this week, Zach Rosen, and to our regular producer, Cameron Drews, who recorded the interview. We'll be back next week with a conversation between Isaac and Fanula Murphy, who invented the alien languages for Apple TV's foundation. Until then, get back to work! With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.